Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, training camp is officially here. Holy hell. It's upon us already. It's the final episode of Smart Football Month. We are going to stunt in our five Cadillacs on our way to our L.A. beach house all over this episode. That's right. Last chance you. It's a last chance you reference. Uh, and officially, with Todd Gurley's contract, the running back is back, baby. Oh, God. No, it's not. It's so back. No, it's not. Todd Gurley proves that running backs are making a comeback because why not? Sure, why not? Yeah, why the hell not? But uh, So we're going to get to the last episode of, of Smart Football Month where we will talk about the defensive side of the ball, Robert Sala, his pressures, and his blitz schemes. So we're going to basically talk about stunts, uh, hence the Last Chance You reference. And if you haven't seen Last Chance You, you really should. It's uh, I it, have not. I keep hearing terrible things about it on Twitter and like how bad it is. I'm like, why am I going to waste my time on that? dude? And no, no, no. The show isn't bad. The show is good. The coach is bad. It's he's awful. He's uh, I'll give you a little preview. Dudes in a jacuzzi. I mean, I've seen this image. Yeah. OK. You've seen the image. <laughs> oh, a, repeatedly. Yeah. For those ever. that haven't seen it, imagine a garage somewhere in, I don't know, the heartland of America, like Kansas. And. You've got this inflatable jacuzzi, like the kind that you order on Sky Mall. And it's filled with water, and he is smoking a cigar, and it's indoors in what I can only assume is his garage, his carpeted garage. And he says the night before a big game, you know, I've been so caught up with everything I've had to do organizationally for the team. I just haven't watched much film. Uh, I haven't prepared. But it doesn't really matter because I've been referred to as uh, a savant at breaking down teams on the fly. So we'll be all right. And then don't they just get like fucking stomped in that game? They too? get 70 yeah. points thrown up on their asses. <laughs> oh, man. Coaching. It's great. It's great. It's great. Uh, but yeah, we didn't come here to talk about that, though. We came here to talk about uh, a couple of things before we get into the rundown. Number one. Of course, get your wallpapers on your phones and your computers. We'll call this a Julio Jones effect. If you saw the the, the Atlanta tweet, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can get your merch at T Public. You can go on my Twitter page; it's at Better Rivals to get your stuff. The link should be pinned to the top. And officially, get your merch, get your wallpapers, and get ready for the season because it's upon us. So let's hit the rundown. Number one, Football Outsiders release our almanac for 2018, which means it's time for us to talk about things we took away. David, what were your kind of big takeaways from the article when you read through it? So I was uh, pretty surprised. Well, I don't know. I I was a little surprised, I guess, by the actual projection, right? Um, And so the the win total that they put out was 7.4 wins, which, again, um, we kind of talked about this a little bit with George last week. Anytime you have these sort of simulations, right, the, the actual number that is the projected win total doesn't really matter all that much. Everything gets lumped into the middle. You, you you end up with basically everybody between like six and 10 wins. And we know that that's not actually how it's going to play out uh, this season. So it really is more about where that projected win total places uh, among the rest of the league, among the division. And uh, this was the worst projection in the NFC West. Uh, and they gave the 49ers a, only a 25.9% chance of making the playoffs. So, um, I can see why, but to me, this kind of, I guess, feels like this feels like a more of a floor sort of projection. Um, you know, I feel like 
this is a, a very much a worst case scenario for this team going into the season. Well, I don't know what they do put the Jimmy GQ effect kind of into their model, right? Because they, they totally. do something very similar where they run simulations and, and Jimmy Garoppolo had an uplift in DVOA at the end of the year because they beat the Rams. And even though they beat the Rams scrubs, the, their numbers don't really recognize that it's the Rams scrubs, right? That's one of the kind of the flaws in, in DVOA and that number that it doesn't right. account for some of those things. So this is it's interesting that they have them there. Um, I think PFF just also did their um, their NFC West recap and George, friend of the pod, George and and Eric. And they had the Niners at just over eight wins. They actually had three teams in the NFC West at just north of eight wins which was yeah for for them uh was third place finish yeah in the there the third highest projection yeah it was uh, still it was still i think rams seahawks and then niners yeah i think they're a little bit higher on the seahawks than than a lot of other people are right now but they had the cardinals bringing up kind of the rear in the division which i think makes kind of sense to me too yeah the the football outsiders almanac though does still predict that the niners are not going to have a super tough schedule they have their 23rd toughest projected schedule which is about in line with what the pff rankings have them um they use i think massey yeah. and their massey rankings have them about there which massey takes the grades of the players into account when putting together the, the strength of schedule which makes a whole lot of sense and, and so overall i think when you when you think of the things you're going to put in the bag to shake up and get a prediction for the niners strength of schedule is kind of a big deal and oftentimes that is one of the variables that that can tell you whether or not a team is going to have a a bounce back year or a zero to hero year it's just because they play a great schedule Definitely. I, I think if we look, uh, you know, back at the end of this season, right, and the 49ers have made the playoffs, and so it's more of like a best-case scenario for this season for them, I think we're going to look back at that strength of schedule as like a big reason why, you know, because it, you look at the NFC as a whole, and it's stacked. I mean, there, I think there's, you know, probably, what, 12 teams in that division, it feels like, that uh, you could probably make a solid case that they could uh, contend for a playoff spot this season, so... Uh, it's it's going to be tough to make your way in in the NFC, but if the 49ers can make that happen, I think they have one of the friendliest schedules um, you know, of that mix, and I think one of the friendliest, if not the friendliest, in the NFC West, right, which is going to help them. It's kind of a virtue of that last place finish last season. They get to play a, a couple worse teams than the rest of the division does, so I think that's absolutely going to be something that, that helps them this year. Other surprising stats from the Football Outsiders article Five of the nine breakout quarterbacks played for San Francisco. So they had this really cool table, which basically compared the first basically four starts of a quarterback's career, looking at, at the thing, the, the phenomenon that was Jimmy GQ. And when you look at the table, it's just basically 49ers quarterback after 49ers quarterback. You've got Jimmy Garoppolo, Deshaun Watson, Colin Kaepernick, Tim Rattay, Mark Bulger, Paul Justin. No idea who that dude is. Elvis Gerback, Steve, Fon- uh, Steve Bono. Uh, and John Forcade for for Cod Forcade don't know doesn't matter but it's not good the, it's it's pretty astounding that Bono Gerback Ritay Cap and Garoppolo all San Francisco players all hot starts of course their <laughs> careers are all ending very differently and we haven't we don't know what Garoppolo's is going to be like here at the end but super interesting uh, another one was that the that there's a disparity in the pressure rate that Football Outsiders has for the 49ers as compared to, to Pro Football Focus. David, what? How does Pro Football Focus define its pressure rate? Because Football Outsiders has the 49ers at 23rd in the NFL in pressure rate and 29th in adjusted sack rate. But of course, we just talked to George on last week's pod, and he pointed out that the Niners had the 12th best pressure rate. So, how does Pro Football Focus define the stat, and and how might it be different from Football Outsiders? So the only thing is, I mean, I mean, as far as defining it, it seems to be pretty similar in in both cases, which is just the 
you, you take the total number of plays in which a sack hit or hurry was recorded and you divide that by the total number of pass plays and there's your pressure rate. Um, the, the one thing that football outsiders appears to do differently. Um, and again, there's going to be like some inherent differences in this because especially once you get to that hurry range, you know, that, that can be more of a subjective thing. And so how they, uh, define a hurry, you know, is going to be probably different from what we're doing at PFF. And, um, you know, I'm not sure as to, to how exactly they do that, but the one thing that, uh, they did point out, so you go to their statistical toolbox and it kind of gives you all the definitions of, uh, you know, the different stats that they include in all these tables. And the only thing that it really mentioned uh, as far as pressure rate goes is that they actually don't include pressures that they deem to be a result of coverage or some sort of scramble, right? So those are plays where, uh, you know, PFF, we would still give that a pressure and that is going to factor into the pressure rate. And it's more the grade that's going to take into account the type of pressure that that is. Um, so I think that's going to be probably the biggest thing beyond just the, the subjectivity of the hurries, um, that's going to account for that difference. It's one of the first times I've seen such a disparity, I think in, in a number like pressure rate, I don't know that I've seen, you know, like a 10, 10, 12 spot difference before, but I think it goes to show what's the key takeaway. The key takeaway is whenever you look at a number, whenever you look at a stat, it's important to know what the inputs are in that stat or how it's measured in order to really fully understand it. And so, you know, who knows what what the ultimate right answer is here. But I think it is important to know what makes up the stat. And so that way you can better evaluate what it means. Last one that I thought was interesting in the Almanac was the best personnel package for the 49ers, 22 personnel. Two, uh, best in air quotes. Yeah. yeah Strong two, air quotes. Two running backs, two tight ends. There was a 65% DVOA. You're like, oh my God, that's amazing. Why don't we do that all the time? Well, it's only 2% of plays, about 20 snaps on the year. So probably some, a lot some of fun with there. small samples. Yeah. yeah. Is, uh, is what that is. So yeah, I think they're. Their actual, though, makes sense because I think yeah. we talked about some of these numbers when we were talking about passing out of, uh, you know, run personnel a few episodes ago. But 11 personnel was still the most efficient, which, again, even when you're doing things well from those run personnel groups, and I think you can find some advantages there. Like right now, NFL, you're still most efficient when you're putting three or more receivers on the field and you're throwing the football. Yeah, I think uh, their two big personnel packages were 21 and uh, 11. And, and that comprised the bulk of their, their of their pass snaps, basically oh, not their pass snaps, but their snaps on the whole. Yeah. So three, the three that are in this is, I think, fairly common, though the 49ers do more of uh, 12 and 21 than I think a lot of the rest of the league. But 12, 21 and 11 are like the three top um, by by a pretty solid margin. All right. So next story in the rundown, we've got actual news, man. That's how you know football's back. Uh, is this actual news? Uh, I mean, this one's probably <laughs> not. But th- th- this was apparently Jimmy GQ feature week. Because everyone had a feature on Jimmy GQ. Everyone. You've got BR that had a really good feature. You've got Sports Illustrated that had a good feature. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure TMZ had a really good feature in there somewhere. And, Does and TMZ also do really good features? I'm confused here. No, it was just an article yeah. about him being a porn star. <laughs> so the, the thing that the, the quote that kind of made the rounds was uh, Jimmy GQ saying that he felt he was better than Tom Brady. Does that worry you at all? No. No, why, why would that possibly worry me? <laughs> I don't know, because it, it, it really shouldn't worry you, but I'm, I'm wondering if it would in any way, shape, Breaking or form. Breaking fucking news, professional athletes are pretty confident in their abilities. Like, that's the only thing that this comes down to. You don't become a professional athlete if you're like, man, I kind of suck. Like, I don't really think that I should be doing this. Like, 
you're probably not going to do it. You're probably your road as an athlete is going to stop short of being a professional uh, if that's kind of your mindset. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely no surprise that he feels that way. And I think you look at the full quote, too, and it's like it, I mean, this this reporter is like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Do you do you want to change it? And he just finally kind of like gives him something to shut him up so we can move on to like the next topic here. So. Yeah, because yeah, he says there's nothing there. He, he says specifically, I've, I, he, the words he used were, I've always had a quiet confidence. He said, he specifically says, I would never speak that out loud. You know, it, basically, he's trying to intimate, like, hey, dude, get the hint. Like, I'm pretty confident in my abilities, and you kind of have to be to be an elite quarterback, especially one that, you know, didn't go, didn't have a bunch of D1 offers and went to Eastern Illinois and still was able to get drafted in the second round. He's he's saying, yeah, I can do this. And and that's exactly I would be worried if he didn't think that way totally. as a starting quarterback. Yes, correct. So it, it's it's one of those things where I think you much like the statistic, you got to dig a little deeper and you got to say, all right, what did he actually say? And yeah. you know, let's apply just like a, a touch of critical thinking, like when looking at some of this stuff. Yeah, now. you're going to you're going to have to talk to your boy, Gordon, because I think it was Gordon who uh, or not Gordon, uh, Sam, uh, Sam Monson, who was like, I would I, w- I don't want my quarterback to ever say that. Uh, it's like I don't. No, no, no. Sam, Sam had a thing about the uh, about the porn star. I think uh, made a comment about how he didn't he, want him. Also uh, about Tom Brady, he said. Uh, he said. He j- said like to recap. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jimmy thinks he's better than it. I don't think there was much commentary uh, on <laughs> on that comment. But yeah, he's, Sam's gonna do what Sam wants to do. All right. Um, <laughs> give me, give me. So last story here. Give me your one word reaction to Todd Gurley's contract. Go. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Uh, the only reason this contract makes sense. So if, if you've been living under a rock, Todd Gurley signed a, uh, uh, what was a five-year deal at this point, uh, 40 some odd million dollars guaranteed basically puts them at the franchise tag for three years for the running back position. And it's, it's the deal that resets the running back market. Le'Veon Bell tweeted about it in post haste. He was like, yeah, get your money because that's of course good for, for Le'Veon Bell. Uh, I, I think Le'Veon's exact tweet was, and you guys thought I was tripping. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So overall, what what does Todd Gurley have to do in order to provide value for this contract? Um, be Adrian Peterson when he carried the shitty Vikings team to the playoffs, basically by himself with a two thousand yard season every year and then also be like maybe the best receiver at his position so um, so basically he's got to cross the use check line uh yeah i mean do better be like a a hall of famer after these three there's nothing i mean there's nothing realistically that he can really do to live up to that contract um it's just the nature it's not that he's a not a very good player um it is the nature of the position he plays and uh unfortunately for him I mean, I guess not in this case. The Rams, we duped the Rams into getting. Unfortunately, for most running backs, um, the things that they do well are not as valuable as the the things that other players, other skill position players, can do well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you just it doesn't make sense to to pay that much money to a running back. Um, but hey, I'm not going to complain about the Rams wanting to to throw a bunch of cash at uh, at that position. Man, if I'm Aaron Donald, I like I if they don't. I mean, it seems like they they. Uh, at least they're saying continuing to say right that they want to do if they let Aaron Donald walk I mean man after like extending Brandon Cooks and Todd Gurley you're gonna you're gonna go after Brandon Cooks and Todd Gurley and not Aaron Donald are you kidding me I don't I I don't don't, I don't get it either but at the same time if I'm Aaron Donald I'm I'm making sure I'm getting paid and if the Rams don't come with a good offer 
then yeah. I'm out. Oh, Aaron Donald better be the richest non-quarterback in the league. Uh, is is what that contract should be? I, yeah. I, the, so here's here's where you get to the the value of the position, though. Because I mean, if you're going to say that that running back doesn't deserve that kind of a rich contract because of their impact on the game, defensive tackle is has more of an impact on the game than running back does. But I don't know if the, if it vaults it into the highest non-paid quarterback position i think it's more uh a couple things one the nfl does value those players right they pay big money to those three technique type players so the the market is going to dictate that he gets paid already a very very high salary relative to other non-quarterbacks um and then i think he is is such a unique player at that position that it you're not it like it it does uh, there's no point comparing him to other players at that position. He is so much better um, than everybody else doing that. It really makes more sense. If you're going to compare him to anybody along the defensive line, it's going to be you know more of an edge rusher type of player. Um, but yeah, I think you're going to see uh, him. Somebody's going to give him a ton of money. And uh, you know, I, again, I think that's a little bit of a different conversation too as to like whether he should be getting paid that much. I, I feel like very confident that whatever deal he does get, is going to be like the richest defensive player, richest non-quarterback contract. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the the deals that defensive tackles have signed recently, Fletcher Cox, Kawan Short, Marcel Darius, they're all in the you know kind of hundred ninety five or eighty to hundred million dollar range. Uh, Fletcher Cox is getting seventeen million a year. I mean, that's like Joe Flacco money. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, it's a lot. And those players, again, all good players, nowhere Not near the impact that Aaron Donald has on a, on a snap to snap basis. Yeah, it's just uh, it, it's interesting. I think the the that disparity just kind of struck me in that moment where it's OK. So if if we know that defensive tackle is not as valuable as other positions yet, where the market still pays them that way. I'm curious why. You know, and I'm 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 on record as saying I don't think running backs deserve that much money, but I'm wondering what that. I late maybe for another different show or whatever, I'd, I'd probably sure. dig into what some of the differences are there. Cause it's, it's interesting to me, but let's get to Robert Sala and the smart football topic of the week. And it's going to be his stunts and his blitzes. Part of the reason that we wanted to cover this topic is because Robert Sala and specifically the pressure the 49ers are going to bring in 2018 is going to be a big storyline. Of course, the Niners didn't add a marquee pass rusher. They're going to have to rely on their existing players and their existing scheme. So the question really is, all right, so how, how did they generate pressure? What did they do? And, and was it effective as compared to what the rest of the league did? So this episode, we're going to look specifically at Robert Sala's stunts and his blitzes, figure out what the Niners did, what their tendencies are, and what that showed on tape. And then we'll figure out what that means for 2018. So first up, let's tackle some definitions. Well, what is a stunt? A stunt is any pass play where a player loops around another player to attack a different lane or gap. The most common one, of course, you're, you're familiar with it if you watch the Niners in 2012, 2013, uh, and even maybe 2014, it's going to be that tackle and stunt that the Smith brothers made famous. David, describe that stunt for those that are uninitiated. So when you get into those two-man stunts like that, right, the first, so T-E is, is tackle end, and the first letter indicates the player that goes first in the stunt or is you know there's a lot of different names for it um the the penetrator right he's the player that's going first that's looking uh to kind of like just take everything with him right he wants to to take the attention of the offensive lineman and really kind of cause some havoc there so in this case a te stunt 
the tackle, the inside player is going first. And then the second letter, right, end in this case, is going to be the looper. He's the guy that's kind of coming around uh, and looking to hopefully get a free run if everything works uh, properly, free run through the gap that's created by the penetrator. And, and uh, again, you can use any sort of combination of letters there. If you flip it around, ET just means that the end is going first, the tackle is the looper. Um, you can get tackle-tackle stunts, and it's you know more of an interior thing. But with those two-man games, it kind of works that same way. So if that's a stunt, then a blitz is when the defense sends five or more rushers. Now, notice the number five. It doesn't mean that, it, or, or rather, if you send four, it may not always be a blitz. And this is where we get into kind of the area of zone blitzes where you're exchanging a player and maybe dropping a defensive lineman into coverage, but rushing a linebacker. David, are those still technically blitzes? Um, you know, I, I think uh, for our purposes, no, um, we, we're not going to include those. I mean, I think you can make things as complicated as you want to uh, when it comes to defining some of this stuff. But ultimately, I think the expectation on most passing downs is that the opposing team is going to bring four pass rushers. That's by far the most common amount of rushers that come. Um, and so anything more than that expected amount is a blitz, right? So that's how we're kind of uh, quantifying it here. Five or more rushers. It doesn't matter um, how or why or what the scheme is kind of behind it that's sending those five guys as long as five or more are coming. All right. So now some context. We know generally that the, the looping and that blitzes are effective. Well, blitzes are effective. Why? Because it's a numbers game and stunts are effective as well, but they're effective for a couple different reasons. One is just offensive line confusion. That's really what a stunt is trying to do. It's trying to confuse the hell out of, an, out, of, out of an offensive line and make them work together to deal with something that's uncommon. So when you think of a, of a TE stunt or a tackle end stunt, the difficulty there is that you've got Justin Smith in your chest right away and, you've got, and you're thinking to yourself, oh crap, I've got to prevent him from doing what he wants to do. All the meanwhile, there's another dude looping around you into the gap that you just vacated because you're worried about Justin Smith. It's about confusion and about making defense and, and about making offensive linemen work in concert to do things when if they're not good offensive linemen and they can't communicate, they don't handle it well. And all of a sudden you've got a free pressure where there was one not to be had previously. Definitely. It, it is not an easy thing to be able to handle that stuff and, and the communication that goes into it and also just. Um, you know, you think on a, a very kind of surface level, if you're a guard and you have somebody like DeForest Buckner lined up across from you, um, you're going to be pretty hard pressed to want to just like let go of that block, right? And, and risk him potentially running free. So you have to really be sure, you know, in this case, if you're, if we're talking just kind of two blockers and we're not getting, uh, any sort of slide and extra help involved here, um, you know, you, that guard needs to be very sure that the tackle is ready to take over that penetrator right before he can really feel comfortable moving off of that block and looking to pick up the looper that's coming inside. Um, so it's, there, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And really, again, anytime that you can make things more difficult for offensive linemen, make them have to communicate, make them have to, you know, pass these blocks off. Uh, it's typically going to work out in your favor as a defense. It's almost like the equivalent of a run pass option or play action for the offense where you want that linebacker to think, ever so slightly to have a false step to pause because then that gives you enough of a window to do what you need to do. You want to make that offensive line think, pause, mess up, judge themselves, not just get into their pass set and block the guy in front of them so that you can take advantage of that pause and of that thought. 
Um, and, and so there is definitely an element of confusion. And this is going to be important later on when we talk about, you know, why maybe the Niners have some effectiveness or non-effectiveness when they're stunting. But now we get to one of the other reasons that stunts are effective. And quite literally, it's just holding. <laughs> like it's just holding because sometimes uh, like yeah. defensive holding is very rarely called on the defensive line. Yeah. It has to be pretty egregious. And, and even, and when, even then, and even like, then, yeah. you know, I mean, this is this is one of the reasons that the T.E. stunt was so successful with Justin Smith and with Alden Smith was because Justin Smith was a master fucking holder. The dude held and held hard and refs didn't catch it. Teams complained about it. The Giants complained about it. And I think he maybe had like one. Pen- I'm not even sure if he had one penalty called on him. I mean, even if he did, whatever number of penalties that he got called on him doing those, um, the number of positive plays that they generated out of doing that. Uh, it was worth the risk. That. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that, that's one of the other reasons that it works is it gives the player an opportunity to just flat out hold. Uh, and, and, and that gives the offense it puts the offensive line coaching point number one hold the shit out of that guy hey right? man if it works keep doing it <laughs> keep doing it till they stop it um, so that that's generally why stunts work and you know why blitzes are effective because it's a numbers game so on average then what does the NFL do on average the league stunts about 29% of the time incidentally they also blitz about 29% of the time so uh, three out of every 10 pass plays, you're looking at a stunt or a blitz or some combination thereof. And the latter the down, the more likely are, the more likely teams are to employ stunts. And that's very simply because stunts are problematic if you're trying to defend run. Yeah, especially I think there's there's different types of stunts that you do that are run specific, right? But, um, you know, a lot of times if you're the stunts that you're looking to do in the pass game to generate pressure um, are different. And sometimes those stunts leave you where you don't have, uh, you know, all of the lanes kind of accounted for, right? Because you may be trying to overload one side or whatever may be going on there. It can kind of leave you a little bit vulnerable um, to, to kind of get gashed in the run game if you're not doing something that's specifically targeting, you know, trying to disrupt a, a particular run scheme. This kind of goes back to something we covered in, I think it was Scheme Month last year. Remember when we talked about rush lanes? Yeah. And we talked about how it's not it's not quite gap soundness when you're rushing the passer. It's more lane soundness. And, and sometimes you you basically have two outside rushers that have more of a container role. And you've got two interior rushers. And one of them, usually the three technique, has a two-way go. Well, in the pass game, then, you're more free to loop around and be a little freer with your gaps because you don't have to maintain gap integrity where you do have to do that in the run game because you're probably going to get gashed otherwise. Yeah, if it's first and 10, right, even if you kind of expect pass with the way things are in the NFL still right now and teams running the ball, I think, still over 50% of the time on first down, um, you you do have to be gap sound. So anything that you're doing there, you need to make sure that everything's fitted up properly in the run game or you're going to you know be susceptible to giving up some big plays there. Whereas if you, it's third and 10 and they want to rush the ball, like by all means, please do, right? You're not really that concerned about it. So you're willing to be a little bit more exotic, get guys kind of out of their normal gaps um, and, and do some different things there in order to try to confuse the offensive line and get pressure on the quarterback. So on third downs last season with just four-man rushes, Stunts generated pressure about 41.8% of the time compared to just 35.8% without that stunt. So basically you're seeing an an uptick of pressure when teams stunt. And of course, while blitzing, you also saw an uptick about a 51% pressure rate versus 47% while not blitzing. So overall, stunting and blitzing 
basically give you a higher pressure rate than you would expect if you wouldn't. And that makes sense. because. And I think the key thing there is too, right, that this is on third down. So this isn't like the non-stunt plays are factoring in some of those early downs where it's less likely that you're going to stunt anyway, right? Uh, and less likely to get pressure anyway because they may be running the ball a little bit more or something like that. So um, yeah, I think when you look at those passing situations, uh, even then when you start to do something to try to confuse the offensive line, your pressure rate's going to go up. All right, so what are the 49ers' tendencies? Overall, the Niners pressured the passer on about 34% of pass plays, and this is the pro football focus pressure rate. So this is the one where they're 12th in the league, not the football outsider's pressure rate, where they are 23rd in the league. And honestly, I kind of prefer the pro football focus measure here only because the it, pro football focus is going to measure a, a sack, a hit, and a hurry, and they're going to call a spade a spade. It's like it's either a sack or a hit or a hurry. That is a statistic. And, we, and they have a specific way of measuring a hurry. And, and that's important, yes, but it's consistent across all the people who are measuring hurries. They're going to leave the context of that hurry to the player's grade. If a player has a hurry that is a result of coverage and the quarterback is scrambling and it's four seconds and then they finally get that hurry, well, the player is not going to grade positively. The player is probably going to just grade as like a neutral grade, but it's still going to be notched as a hurry. So the statistic is left as is in an easy binary definition. The context is then added by the grade. And I think that's probably a better way of doing it than trying to insert context into the percentage number. Yeah, I mean, I uh, obviously got some some bias in there. Uh, I completely agree. I, I think the way that, uh, that, that we do it there uh, is really good. I'm obviously far more familiar with that. And this isn't trying to like, um, discount the way that uh, that football outsiders and sports uh, info solutions measure. I just, just don't know. I'm just not as familiar with like that process. So I certainly do feel confident in the way that PFF measures. Well, it, I think if if I were if I were to be the non PFF voice in the room, and I am officially <laughs> after this week, um, what I would say is because because football outsiders doesn't have a grading mechanism, they have to find some way to introduce context right. into their statistic. That's effectively what DVOA is at its core is it's a way to introduce context into a statistic to measure efficiency. What is the context? The context is average. You have to measure what is better than average and what is worse than average. That is, that is their way of introducing context. And it makes a whole lot of sense. And I think that it's just different ways of, of using numbers to kind of, uh, to kind of describe what is happening on the field. Last week we talked about, of course, predictive stats and explanatory stats and, and this, I think, is one of the things that explains what happens in, in just a different way than Pro Football Focus does. But for the purpose of, the, of this conversation, we're going to look specifically at... And the, I think, yeah, just to clarify, too, all of the numbers as far as the, the stunt, pressure, blitz rate, any of that stuff that we've kind of already mentioned that wasn't specifically in that almanac section at the beginning uh, and that we're going to mention here going forward, that's all stuff from PFF. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the 49ers pressure the passer on 34% of pass plays. Are, are you, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with George, but are you surprised by that ranking at all? Considering, because they only had, what, 33 sacks? Which is still yeah. the bottom third of the league. I mean, I'm not because we talked about this like every week during the season last yeah. year. So, uh, you wrong. know, he knew kind of like where, where it was at um, and knew that it was like a little bit better than kind of perception, I think, would lead you. Because again, you put a lot of stock 
in the, the sacks. And I think uh, to a degree, right, is, is an explainer. That makes a lot of sense, right? Sacks, uh, it, they're kind of like turnovers. When, you, when you're looking at the end of a game and trying to figure out kind of like why things happen the way they did and you see like one team had piled up seven sacks, well, that's like a lot of drive killers, right? That, that's going to explain kind of why the result was the way it was. Um, but it's not necessarily the best way to measure what's going to happen in the future. And this is something that George and Eric have talked about on the PFF forecast that, that pressures actually predict future sacks better than sacks do, right? It's kind of like uh, a very similar to wins and points scored, right? Where if you look at the points scored and points allowed in a season, that actually predicts future wins better than the win-loss record did from the season before. So uh, a very similar sort of relationship there. Now, when you look at how the 49ers stunt, the, the I just I can't I can't not think of like G unit stunt. Yep. Whenever teach you how to stunt. Yeah. I'm in trying to. Uh, <laughs> so the Niners stunt at about 27 percent. Remember that league average is about 29 percent. Two percent doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to put the Niners in the lower third in terms of stunt frequency. However, their pressure rate on stunts is seventh in the NFL at 45.1. So the takeaway here is that while the Niners stunt fewer or less than the NFL average, they generate pressure at a higher rate than you would expect uh, from teams that stunt. So the question then becomes, why don't the Niners just stunt all the time? (laughs) I think it's like anything, right? Uh, It's kind of like why one of the conversations that we've been having the last couple of weeks is like, why don't you throw the ball 100% of the time, right? You do hit a point of sort of diminishing returns, right? Where you're not getting the sort of efficiency uh, that that you want and kind of maximizing those opportunities. If you're doing it every time, there, there's really a finite number of things that you can do, you know, in, in these combinations when you're looking at stunts. Uh, and so the offensive line is going to pick up on those things. The more they get to do it, the, the more practice they're going to be at picking it up. And so uh, you want to kind of, you know, find that middle ground there where, you're doing it enough that you're you're generating the extra positive plays that you want to for your defense, but not doing it so much that it's easy to handle for the offense. And I think this goes back to why stunts are effective. Stunts are effective because they generate confusion. Well, do you know when an offensive line is not confused? When they see a stunt over and over and over and over and over again. It becomes very easy to predict and it becomes very easy to to beat and defeat when you're seeing the same thing repeatedly. This is where holding comes in. <laughs> because <laughs> the, the Niners, everyone knew the Niners were going to run a tackle and stunt with Alden Smith and Judson Smith, but it didn't matter because... It doesn't matter when you can't get off the block. Yeah, and <laughs> we'll talk about this. I don't know. We'll talk about it now. There was a play against Arizona in Week 9 when DeForest Buckner, not even on a stunt. This wasn't or, even a stunt. Chicago. I thought it was a Chicago game. Oh, no, it was, game. Chi- yeah. it was a Chicago game. You're right. It was yeah, against, it wasn't even a stunt. Just, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't even against the Cardinals. It was against Chicago, I think, in Week 12 or 13, where DeForest Buckner just flat out grabs the tackle. He literally engages the guard and grabs the tackle and, let, and lets Cassius Marsh go around the edge, and, and it's a fumble sack against Trubisky. And the ref doesn't even catch it, and the tackle is I mean, hot. He's not trying to hide it all. Like at least Justin Smith, you know, there was like some savvy to it, right? Like it was, <laughs> it was a little uh, difficult at times if you weren't paying right, you know, if you weren't focused in on that, you, you could you could miss it. Um, this he DeForest Buckner is like his arms spread eagle, he like did. he's just like, come here, motherfucker, I'm grabbing you, dude. Uh, dude, Justin yeah, Smith did fun. try to hide his Anheuser Busch logo, like in the chest of whomever he was grabbing. Like it was, it was subtle. It was. Dude, yeah, DeForest Buckner straight. 
Brick Condor, this guy. He was like Bear Claw and, and like, grabbed him. And he just grabs him. And the, the best part, too, is he just grabs him and then he moves him over so he can grab onto the guard, too. And he just like holds both of them. And you see, yeah, the was it Marsh come, come off the end there? Yeah. Uh, very funny. Uh, the, needless to say, the tackle was pissed. Yeah. And um, the rep didn't catch it. And it was still a sack fumble. He recovered his own fumble at that point. But it's still point being made. This is when, This is why you hold. But the idea here is that you don't want to overuse the tool because by overusing the tool, you basically get it dull and it becomes less effective, like a sharp knife or an axe when you're going to murder someone. And again, we're going back to murdering cats. Took a turn. Yep. So, so knowingly or unknowingly, Sala knows that it's not a tool you can, that you should use often to maintain its effectiveness. And the Niners have maintained its effectiveness over time. So when you look at the stump percentages over the course of the year, there are other things you might think, okay, d- d- does the team deploy stunts more often against crappy offensive lines? By and large, the answer is no. There's pretty much, there, there's no thread or signal to the type of team that they employ stunts against, except for the Texans. They, they stunned the hell out of the Texans because why not? I mean, that offensive line was bad. Yeah, they they, they stunted against the Texans uh, on what like thirty five percent of pass plays. Uh, Forty three. Uh, four. There it is. Forty three. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the Tennessee game, which was the game after that. Uh, that's yeah, basically on half of the plays that the the Texans were running pass plays specifically. The Niners stunted, and of course, it resulted in I don't know twenty four hurries, three hits, and three sacks. Yeah, man, that Texans offensive line not great. Yeah, still not great this year, but uh, that's another story. But when you look at other teams that had really crappy uh, offensive lines, you look at maybe the Arizona Cardinals, who their PFF offensive line wreck at the end of 2017 was 31. We didn't stunt that often. It was 22%. You look at another team like Seattle. Seattle, uh, of course, historically has terrible offensive lines. Only centered against them 22% of the time. In the, in the first game, in the second game, it, it went up to 28 and that's about on average with what the Niners did. So there's no noise there. Uh, when you think about other things that could have affected whether or not the Niners stunt, Solomon Thomas's injury, did that affect things at all? Not really. Yeah. I mean, again, it didn't, a lot of the games where they actually, um, you know, stunted a little bit more frequently came at the end of the season, you know, came in the second half of the season there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, overall, they were pretty consistent, as consistent as you can kind of be, uh, you know, when when you're talking about something that you're doing maybe 10 12 times in a game uh on average or so you know you have a few kind of outliers in either direction like the again the texans on the high side there was the game against dallas where they only stunted three times only once without a blitz um on on the low end of things there but yeah in large part they were kind of right uh in that that middle kind of average level that they had all season yeah, there there is a stretch in the middle of the season, weeks five, six, and seven, where they seem to stunt not very often against Indianapolis, Washington, and Dallas. But but again, no no idea whether or not that's a trend or anything. By and large, I think it just kind of evens out to uh, to what it is that we see. So overall, their stunt percentage remained pretty low. Their blitz percentage not super high across the league. I think overall in the season, their blitz percentage was 24.8%, which uh, was not high. It was still low, I think, in the bottom third in terms of NFL defenses, which makes sense because the the cover three defense that the Niners employ isn't a super exotic defense. It's a pretty much line up and play kind of a defense. Yeah, I, I think um, when you start to kind of, you know, and I think we're going to touch on this a little bit uh, here in a minute, but 
Um, you know, you start to look at it kind of what you might expect from them going forward, whether you expect any of this to kind of increase, decrease. And I just think when you look at blitzing, it's just not something that's a huge part of the system, right? They're never going to be a team uh, that's near the top of the NFL in terms of blitz percentage. Uh, it's just not what they do. It's not what they want to be defensively. Um, but again, stunts are kind of another story and you get into those passing situations. And I think that's a, an area where they have some room. All right, so let's talk about how the Niners did it. They they did it in in kind of three big buckets, and of course there are other ways that they do it too. But generally, every time that they would stunt and or blitz, it would fall into a couple of of big categories. One is the standard tackle and stunts. More often than not, Buckner was the penetrator for a looping edge. Sometimes that edge was Solomon Thomas. Sometimes it was Cassius Marsh. Sometimes it was Dakota Watson. Uh, sometimes it was uh, Elvis Dumerville. It, it, you know, that person interchanged. But by and large, Buckner was the person who was penetrating for a looping edge. And, and what's, what's interesting about this is that you think to yourself, okay, the Niners' defense is a defense that's not super complex. It's predicated on playing fast and executing your assignment. And yet, as late as week nine, players like Buckner and Marsh could not execute a TE stunt correctly. Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, some some communication elements that were in there that that just were were kind of off. You know, there's like a play, the play that you're referencing there where it looks like they're both setting up to be the looper. Um, and then, you know, just kind of like neither of them is, is the guy uh, that's going to be the penetrator and go first. And it just kind of like ultimately ends in a wash and neither of them do anything. Um, and so, yeah, having those plays like it happened in the second half of the season, uh, certainly not a great look. You know, I don't know. Uh, that that was like an overly common thing, something I would be terribly worried about. But it should be something that you would hope if it's going to be a big part of your defensive scheme that you're working on each week, um, you know, that you'd be a little bit more practiced in that and not having those kind of problems over the second half of the season. Well, remember that Marsh, Marsh was a late season addition. So I don't know sure. exactly when it was added, but it, um, it could have been that it, you know, if I'm going to put it on someone. I'm probably going to put it on Marsh. Uh, but I think when, when we get to... You know, kind of what this means going forward, though, I think there is something to be said about continuity in defensive scheme and defensive calls. And that's something we'll talk about here in a bit. But the other the other part, I think that or the other way in which the Niners try to pressure offenses is with these fake overloads. And this is where you get into lining up a bunch of players onto one side. You stack everyone to a side and basically try to get the offensive line to slide protection over to that side. And if you remember, was it this scheme month that or was it last game that we talked about protections and protection schemes? Yeah, I think last year we did kind of like a, an O-line 101 sort of thing, right. talking about some basic run schemes, basic pass protections. Where you get like a sure. half slide or a full slide, and you're basically trying to get the offensive lineman to cheat over to one side, and then you loop someone else on the other side and gain a numbers advantage on the other area. This seemed to be prominent in that Week 9 game against Arizona, where you see consistently team uh, for the 49ers line up on uh, an overload aside, and then eventually try to loop someone over didn't work all that much, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, but, I mean, this was like uh, this was like their go to. Uh, it was kind of, you know, like a combination of this. And then they would kind of mix in uh, a similar sort of like look uh, with the fire zone. So fire zone is kind of our third bucket there, um, which fire zone, just zone blitz three underneath defenders, three deep defenders is really all you're looking for there um, in, in order to fall under that category. Um, but the way that they would do that is you would see a lot of times you'd have two defensive linemen that were kind of stretched a little bit wide and some some wide alignments there, and they're going to basically slant back toward the middle of the offensive line. 
then you usually get somebody coming off the edge, whether that's kind of, you know, a, a nickelback or, you know, a linebacker, whoever it may be, somebody coming off the edge to basically hold that tackle out there. And then they really are trying to hit the B gap, right? They're trying to loop a linebacker or somebody else in there to get that, that B gap space uh, is, is the one that they want to exploit and be able to get to the passer. So that was something that I think was basically their go-to kind of pressure package um, and, and something that it showed up really throughout the course of the entire season. Yeah, and when you think about that Week 9 game against Arizona, they had 30 pass snaps, 11 blitzes for 36% uh, blitz rate. They had 10 stunts, 33%, and four of those plays were stunts with no blitzes, 13% of the time. Zero sacks, seven hits, though, and five hurries. And of course, from the beginning of the year this year, where we did a lot of our, our kind of game recaps, we, we know that even though um, sacks kill drives, pressure still affects games. And so it was a game that you know, the, the Niners would have liked to have converted for sacks. But overall, their strategy generated eh, a fair amount of, of hits, uh, which still you know kind of impacted the game. Not enough for a win, though, because they didn't have Jimmy GQ at quarterback. <laughs> so how they do it uh, overall, the Niners' tendencies are that they, they stunt at a below-league average, they blitz at a below-league average, but when they do stunt, uh, they generally generate pressure at a higher rate. Um, but you kind of get into this area of diminishing returns. How they do it, pretty much in some traditional ways, standard TE stunts, fake overloads, and fire zone blitzes. So, David, what the hell does this mean for 2018, and what can we expect from this defense? Or perhaps a better question, what should we expect? from this defense in 2018. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the obviously we're not, uh, we're not there and, and don't know exactly what Robert Sala is thinking in, in terms of what he wants to do in terms of making changes for this season. But I think the, the thing again, that we can safely assume that mentioned earlier, um, it, I really don't think they're going to blitz a lot more. It's just not what they want to do defensively. You know, you, you look at the type of coverages that they run and, and they're really wanting to limit those big plays. They want to stay over the top of everything and, and really force the defense or excuse me, force the offense to throw underneath them so that they can rally up, make tackles and make them kind of dink and dunk down the field. You know, that's kind of the core philosophy there. So when they bring pressure and, and blitz, it, it tends to be safe pressure when they do. And, and I just don't think it's something that they're going to do a lot. You know, you look at all the other defenses around the league um, that run that similar type of scheme, and it's just not a big part of what they do. So I feel like that's a pretty safe assumption. Um, however, I do think there is a little bit of room for them to use stunts more often. And, and hopefully, uh, again, we talked about some of the sloppiness that seemed to be involved last year, and, and you may be able to chalk that up to like, oh, it's a new addition. He wasn't uh, really familiar there. But you want to... If you're going to do this stuff right, you want to make sure that that it's repped and and that it's a, a focus point for you in the off season, so that when you get into the season, you're a little more practiced at this stuff and and you're ready to go. Um, and I think that can be a way for them to, to to possibly generate pressure a little bit more often, right? Or at least I think maintain what they did because you look at it, what they did from a defensive line and from a pass rusher standpoint, it's really all the same guys coming back, right? You got to tout you. Um, who I, I think people are, are probably have too high expectations of at this at this stage. Um, I think it's unfair, uh, to, honestly, to him to to kind of expect him to come in and be the savior. They, there wasn't it wasn't a great offseason to add edge players. You know, well, not only it that, just, but it just wasn't. So they're going to have the same guys there. They need to hope to either those guys are going to develop and take a step forward, or they need to do something from a scheme standpoint. That's the only way that you're going to get more pressure. Two things: one pertinent, two second thing, not so pertinent. Number one, pertinent. Tauchu, when we broke him down after we signed him, his best season when he had six sacks, his sacks were not like immediate pressure sacks. They were not what you would call a high-grade sack. They were cleanup sacks. 
there were sacks where he was happened to be, he happened to be out on the edge and the quarterback is scrambling over there and he's like, oh, you're running into me kind of sacks. Uh, I would imagine that if, if you think of six sacks, at least three of them, 50% of them were clean up or some kind of pressure flushed them out. Atauchu was there kind of a sack. So even his best year wasn't a year where he was beating tackles straight up one-on-one and and getting to the quarterback in a way that you would think to yourself, this is a guy who's going to get me, you know, six, seven, eight, nine sacks. I think honestly, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna set the over under at Atauchu's best year at six sacks, I'm taking the under easy. Oh, without even thinking twice about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first thing. Second thing, completely non pertinent. Uh, the the beer that we're drinking right now, well, the beer that Dave is drinking right now, everything rhymes with orange IPA. Uh, it's from Oklahoma of all things, Rufftail Brewing. It's freaking right. delicious. You're, David's I've never, never had this. I've never had this before. Simcoe Simco yeah. hops, super dry. It's not as orangey as Bloodwork Orange, which is the Austin Beer Works IPA that David loves. Um, but it's delicious. It is very nice, isn't it? Though, yeah, yeah. it's great. Um, so yeah, so overall, I would say that that if this is a year where you're thinking to yourself, okay, the Niners didn't add a lot of players, how can they bolster their pass rush? It's going to have to be schematically, definitely. And this is again, this is the one thing that they can do, and and whether they. Uh, decide to do that, um, you know, more often remains to be seen. We're not going to get that that answer until the season rolls around. But this is the area that you got to look right. It's got to be scheme. I don't think it's going to be blitz. Um, you know, and obviously you're hoping for some development from some of these players, right? I think Solomon Thomas is the most obvious one. Um, Buckner, I think he hasn't reached his ceiling yet. I think he's still going to continue to improve. Um, and, and you know, hopefully, again, sacks tend to be. You mentioned some of the stuff with. Uh, with a Tauchu there, sacks are largely kind of luck-based, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, that's, I think that's why it's important to look at pressures. And I think yeah. this is why when you're looking at the Niners having the 12th, best, the 12th best pressure rate in the NFL, that is the thing that you should focus on. Don't focus on a Tauchu and whether or not he's going to be great. Uh, to a certain degree, don't focus on, on Solomon Thomas and whether or not he's going to take a step two. Think to yourself, last year, with the team the Niners had, and Dakota Watson and Cassius Marsh and Elvis Dumerville, they were still able to generate the 12th highest pressure rate in the NFL. And that that's good because eventually pressures turn into sacks because we know from just basic math that when you correlate year to year, pressures are stable, sacks are not. And so that's that's the thing I think that buoys me. And if you And if you put that correlation and you pair it with, Okay, Solomon Thomas, hopefully he's a little better. I think he will be. He's probably my pick for breakout player this year outside of Adrian Colbert. And then you think to yourself, okay, now the defense is probably going to try and funnel more plays towards DeForest Buckner. They probably already did because, as you mentioned it, the Niners go-to pressure package is one that tries to get pressure in that B-gap. And then overall, you think to yourself, okay, so if you keep doing the same thing that you're doing and you get a bit better play from some key players— and even if a Tauchu is all he has to do is basically get to Doomerville level, then <laughs> hey, I mean Doomerville was actually great last year. I'm I'm kind of surprised they didn't bring him back, but but continue. Doomerville had the same number of pressures, I think, as DeForest Buckner, but played like half as many snaps. Doomerville was exactly what he was supposed to be last year. He was a guy that played uh, you know, almost they tried to play him almost exclusively in passing situations, and he came in. Uh, on those limited number of snaps and he did a pretty good job pressuring the passer. Yeah. You know, he didn't, again, not a lot of sacks, which was kind of a theme for the entire team. Um, but he, he was a good player last year. Um, he was, I think their best edge rusher very clearly. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it was a little surprising that they didn't want to at least like 
considering there weren't any other very good options, right? Like it was only uh, the the only hope that they had basically was Junior Gallette, who had you know a number of off the field problems. You can understand why they didn't want to get involved there. He took a belt to the free agent options, <laughs> and and then it was Harold Landry in the draft, right? And and you pass on him, and so those are kind of I think your two best options to improve on the edge. It just wasn't a great year to do that. Uh, and so I think you're looking at other ways to improve. Um, and I think this highlight, I mean, this gets away a, a tad from, from the crux of the episode, but I think when you look at also what they did, right. Uh, when, when you're talking about the stunts and blitzes, they did generate pressure more often doing that. They were more successful than what you would expect based on league average, but that actually didn't help their, like say passer rating allowed as much as you would expect. And I think that really kind of highlights the much bigger issue they had last year as a defense, and that was coverage. And that was uh, an area they did devote a lot of resources to this offseason, bringing in Richard Sherman, all the guys they had in the draft. And so you're hoping that if they can maintain that pressure rate, maybe you get a small uptick because you get a little better in an area like this and in terms of being able to generate uh, some better stunts. Then if you get improved coverage on the back end of that, that's when your pass defense can really take a, a step forward and be much improved from last season. So let's do a quick round of the over-under, lightning round, whatever we're going to call it. Do you think the Niners in 2018 will end up better or worse than the 12th best pressuring defense? Go. Ooh. Uh, I will go better, but just like, I mean, I want to say worse. Math tells me that it should be worse, uh, like that that's where the better odds are. But I'm going to go just math. better... I think there's they're going to be just slightly better, not we, a whole lot. We but. do one show with George, and all of a sudden, math is telling you things. Jesus. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, all right. So over, true. under on the number of sacks, which I think was 32 or 33 this past year. Uh, did the Niners finish with more or fewer sacks than they did uh, last year? More. Not so as much hesitation. Who has more sacks at the end of next year, Harold Landry or Jeremiah Tauchu? Harold Landry. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited, man, to watch him. I can't I know. wait. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of want. Like, it's gonna be good either way. Either he's gonna be, he's gonna go out in, in just a pile of flames, or it's gonna be like I'm just not even gonna say I told you so because I'm just gonna stay quiet on it. Yeah, Tauchi's like one of those. Guys, I mean, yeah, I hope obviously that he's great and he can come in there and and be much better than anything that he's ever shown at any other point in his NFL career. Um, it just shouldn't be like the expectation going into it, right? Like he's uh, not a guy that has a high pedigree that has a, a track record of, of success. You know, like it, it really um, isn't all that reasonable to expect him to come in and be the savior in that regard. So uh, yeah, hopefully he's able to come in and make some plays, but I, I don't have that high hopes for him uh, over under on blitz percentage. Does solid blitz more than 25% in 2018 go? No, I'll go under uh, does solid stunt more than 27%. In 2018, I will go yes, just because I hope that that's true. Yeah, me too, <laughs> uh, but only ever so slightly. I hope that I I I just hope they get to league average because yeah. I don't want them to overuse it. I want you them wanna... to get from bottom third to about league average on stunts, and, and I hope that's the case. Uh, and then stunt no blitz this year, their stunt no blitz percentage was 14. percent So I guess the when I said 27, percent that was. Uh, yeah, yeah the, I guess we should have maybe clarified that earlier. Like the the actual stunt, you can have a play that is both a stunt and a blitz, right? And that's actually, uh, I think, probably the majority of stunts. Uh, maybe it's it's close. Um, but 
I think the area where they, the, I think the, the increase should come from and that I think uh, there's a lot of room for growth is the stunting without a blitz, right? The four-man rushes, because that's what they want to do from a coverage standpoint. They want to send four. Uh, and so if you can find ways there to get more pressure, that's the, the area you want to uh, improve. So over under on the stunt no blitz percentage, which for the 49ers this year was 14%. Do they uh, stunt without a blitz more often or less frequently than 14%? More. More? All right. Yeah. There it is. Uh, so I think that does it for this week's episode. This is the last of the Smart Football Month. Next week, we're going to do a predictions episode where we kind of put everything in a box and, and tell you what we think is going to happen. We'll probably have some superlatives as well as kind of end-of-season records, which we've already teased, I think, a bit over the last few episodes. but. Uh, and, and then we get into the preseason, man. It's Football is officially upon us. Dude, we're, we're, we're recording this on a Thursday night. Uh, the Hall of Fame game is one week. Like this time next week, the Hall yeah. of Fame game will be happening. Exactly. And so over the course of the preseason, we are going to have divisional previews where we're going to bring on bloggers and kind of know-it-alls from the other teams in the division. And we'll have conversations with them about what happened with their team how they feel about them and generally give you information about other teams since this is obviously a Niner specific podcast but the NFC West is of import to those that are listening and then it's the season man and off we go so make sure if you don't have your wallpaper you go and download that make sure that if you don't have your official Better Rivals t-shirt you go and get that and if you were a drunkard or have a toddler and you are hashtag about to throw up Make sure you go and get your hashtag about to throw up onesie or your hashtag about to throw up t-shirt. If you have a baby and they don't have about to throw up like onesie, I don't even, we can't be friends anymore. I don't even know what you're doing with your life. I drink coffee out of my Better Rivals mug while I stare at my dachshund in about to throw up onesie. And I've got a sticker on my car. I am merched out. Look at that. I am merched the fuck out. Uh, But yeah, thanks again for tuning in this week. And as always, go Niners. My name is Spencer Hall. My name is Jason Kirk. My name is Ryan Nanny. And when we combine, we form the, the Shutdown, Shutdown Fullcast. I keep telling you, we're not Voltron. The Shutdown Fullcast is technically a college football podcast, but it's also a show about lawn care disasters, regional grocery stores we love, Tennessee Batman, homeowners associations. Bears and video games. I mean, there's also some actual football discussion, like about coaches having huge contracts or coaches making terrible decisions or coaches saying really stupid things. Or the NCAA saying really stupid things. Yeah, there's lots of stupid things in this big, dumb, beautiful sport. Sometimes we talk about football games. Allegedly. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, come find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts like this one. The Shutdown Fullcast. It's not Voltron.